At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. This is Barry Truths. I'm Hank Klibanoff. A.C. Hall was shot and killed by two white policemen in Macon, Georgia, in October 1962. This was eight months after the successful bus boycott by black residents. Because of that, Macon's black community knew how to exert pressure on the white community. And in the days after the death of A.C. Hall, they began to apply the pressure again. First came a mass rally, then a petition campaign, then a quiet protest marched to City Hall and to the Bibb County Courthouse. Hundreds of black residents walked along the sidewalks and wore black armbands. They carried signs that read, Stop the senseless killing, and we weep for justice. The black residents of Macon were not going to let the shooting of A.C. Hall drop. Surprisingly, neither was the coroner, of Bibb County. One man who was about to witness this protest firsthand was Howard Moore Jr., a young black lawyer from Atlanta. He was fresh out of Boston University Law School, trying to find a path to a career in law in Georgia. I have to tell you, the odds were against him. Out of more than 3,000 lawyers and judges in the state, all but 12 were white. 12. The most prominent among those black lawyers in the South was Donald Lee Hollowell, his nickname, Mr. Civil Rights. You may recall in a previous episode, I discussed the integration of the University of Georgia. That's when two black students were finally allowed to enroll in 1961. Well, the attorney who represented them was Donald Lee Hollowell. Howard Moore was in awe of Donald Hollowell. Hollowell, in turn, saw promise in the young Howard Moore and hired him. And one day, actually it was four days after A.C. Hall was killed, Howard Moore was in the law firm's office in downtown Atlanta when Hollowell came to see him. Hollowell tells Moore that a driver is going to take him to Macon. It turns out there's going to be something called a coroner's inquest into the death of one A.C. Hall, and it would be his job to represent the family of the young man. So Hollowell hands Howard Moore a law book and tells him to read up on coroner's inquests on the drive down to Macon. Turns out the local NAACP had retained Donald Hollowell, but Hollowell couldn't make it that day. So Howard Moore is going alone with a law book he's never read. The night that A.C. Hall was shot, 
he was brought to the Macon Hospital. There, Coroner A.R. King Jr. formally declared him dead. But he clearly didn't like what he saw in the emergency room, and he called for an investigation of the teenager's death. The fact that A.R. King would seek to investigate the death of any black teenager was front-page news. That he was inquiring into the shooting by two white police officers? Well, that was nothing short of astonishing. An inquest is a peculiar legal proceeding. It takes place in a courtroom, but it's not a trial. The presiding officer is not a judge, but the coroner. Witnesses give sworn testimony, and they can be cross-examined by attorneys. There's even a jury that helps determine the cause of death. And that's what they're looking for, the cause of death. And they cannot bring criminal charges. A.R. King had won election by defeating the incumbent, a plumber. And he went on to modernize the coroner's office and became a statewide leader among county coroners. Even today, here in Georgia, each year, there's an award named after him, the A.R. King Coroner of the Year Award. Coroners first appeared about 800 years ago in Britain, and one of their most important duties, to investigate violent or sudden death. Now, back then, they often convened inquests with the body of the deceased lying right there in front of everybody, which explains why, in 1962, the transcript of the coroner's inquest was titled, Inquest Held Over the Body of A.C. Hall. So Howard Moore is going to be part of that inquest, and he's making his way south to the Bibb County Courthouse in Macon, still reading up on the law, about coroners and inquests. And as he arrives, he sees hundreds of black people walking two by two, wearing those black armbands and gathering just outside the courthouse. It's something he remembers to this day. And we got down here, it must have been two or three uh, maybe. And when I arrived down here, I saw all these Negroes in front of the courthouse. That is the Howard Moore. Today, He's 86, still active, still engaged in the law. I invited him to fly from his home in San Francisco to Atlanta to meet with me and my students at Emory University and then to accompany me on a trip back to Macon. He and I walked into the very same high-ceiling courtroom where the inquest took place. He hadn't been back there in 56 years. The first thing he did was look up to the balcony. Back then, it was where the black people sat. Today, there are still five or six rows of seats. There's a banister, but the balcony is no longer accessible. It's preserved as a reminder of what once was. But back in 1962, I gotta tell you, it had overflowed with black protesters. Well, to white people in the courthouse, they were protesters, to more. They were a chorus of supporters. The only thing that was really uh, inspiring and endearing to me was the presence of all of the African-Americans, all of the Negroes in the courthouse. And I said to myself, my word, what's going on? There were Negroes in the balcony uh, and what we would call back in the day, the buzzer's nest. And it was jammed. 
and you could literally feel their presence and their anxiety and their uh, interest in the proceedings. What was that he said? The buzzard's nest? Oh, the humiliating language that white people developed to demean black people in the ordinary flow of life. As I think about that expression, buzzard's nest, I think back to a story that the famous African-American photojournalist, Ernest Withers, once told me. He'd gone to a minor league ballpark in Memphis to shoot for the local black newspaper. A white man waved him away from the press area and told him he had to go out to a patch of dirt beyond the outfield, you know, where the black people were allowed to sit. And the white man called it the coal pile. So in 1962, after seeing the balcony filled with African Americans, Howard Moore very quickly got another lesson in how racial attitudes govern the lives of lawyers and the legal system in the South. He looked around the courtroom. Howard Moore saw the raised judge's bench, and below that, two tables facing the bench. Nothing unusual there. One table was for the prosecution, the other was for the defense. Now follow me here. At the defense table would be the two police officers who shot A.C. Hall and their defense attorney. At the prosecution table would be the solicitor, sometimes called the district attorney. And on this day, the prosecutor is Jack Gautier. And like the defense attorney, Gautier is white. But there was another lawyer who would be part of the inquest. Howard Moore Jr., the only black man in the mix. So there are three parties, but only two tables. Now, where in this configuration will the three parties sit? Well, typically, parties on the same side of a case would sit together. In this case, that means the man prosecuting the police, Jack Gautier, would sit with Howard Moore, the lawyer representing the family of the victim. And if all lawyers had been white, well, that's exactly what would have happened. But this is still the Old South. Howard Moore walks into the courtroom and puts his papers down on one of the tables. Then the prosecutor walks into the courtroom. But he avoids the table with Moore. He sits with the police he's about to prosecute. All these years later, inside that same courtroom, I asked Howard Moore about that. Do you think a white solicitor was not going to sit at the same table as the black attorney representing the family? <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. He's not going to be run out of the county. You can see the next election around. He is an in-lover, and once you're white and you get tagged with being an in-lover, your life as a white person in the white community is over. O-V-E-R, over. The inquest will answer a lot of questions, and it's going to provoke several more. It will be an epic legal battle, pitting a legendary civil rights attorney against a legendary white supremacist lawyer and legislator. The 128-page transcript to the inquest, which began four days after Brown and Durden killed A.C. Hall, is one of the few official documents we have. In our search for records, what we couldn't find is far greater than what we could find. We couldn't find the police investigation files, incident reports, records of interviews with witnesses, 
questions or doubts or attitudes that police might have written into their notes. None of that. We couldn't find it. A Bibb County records clerk in Macon did find one very helpful document, an index card that someone in the coroner's office filled out shortly after A.C. Hall was declared dead. This may sound small, but it gives you an idea of what a search like this is like. On the index card, all the stuff that was typed in, we already knew. But on the back of the index card, written by hand, was a note. Boy, mother, works for A. Hurwitz. In other words, A.C. Hall's mother works for someone named A. Hurwitz. And then it gave a house address on a street called the Prado. So this information led us to Jan Hurwitz Mann. You may remember she was the one who told us about Curly Hall and her house. But it was gray and white, little bitty house, but it was pretty. I remember she loved that house. So whoever scribbled that tidbit on the back of that index card in 1962 would have no idea that they were writing a time capsule for us to open in 2018. Up till then, we didn't know if or where Curly Hall worked. Now we knew. She was a domestic, the help. Turns out she'd been a maid for two generations of Hurwitzes. But all those other records, the nuts and bolts of the police work in the criminal case, gone or just out of reach. My class at Emory and I have gone to great lengths to recover those records with no success. Of course, it's nearly six decades after the fact. Maybe they're getting moldy in a box in a forgotten warehouse. Maybe somebody's assistant tossed them into a dumpster in 1983. And yes, maybe someone took the files and made sure they would never be found. There's no way to know. What might those records show? Well, for one thing, it would be helpful to see if key witnesses said one thing in their police statements just after the shooting and another in the inquest you're about to hear. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. The county prosecutor, Jack Gautier, is the first lawyer to question each witness during the inquest. Gautier calls as his first witness James Brooks, a Macon police detective. Brooks and his partner were close by when the two officers opened fire. They heard the shots and they raced toward the source of them. Because it's so central to our story, we're using voice actors to tell crucial parts of the testimony. We haven't changed a word. As we reenact the hearing from nearly 60 years ago, Detective Brooks is testifying. As we approached there, we saw a colored girl on the street in front of the school there, Hazel Street. 
We stopped and asked her what was the trouble. She said, the police are shooting at AC or something in that manner. Did you find out who she was? We later found out that it was Eloise Franklin of 365 Edgewood Lane. All right, Mr. Brooks. Following that, what did you do in connection with the investigation? Officer Henson and I went to the Macon Hospital emergency room, and just before we arrived, we had a call from the radio sergeant stating that Coroner King was at the hospital and he had a dead body there. When we arrived, we found A.C. Hall was marked dead on arrival. Just about this time, well, we had noticed the same girl was running up the street. That's Eloise Franklin. She was running up the street toward the emergency room. We stopped her and asked her if she knew anything about the shooting, and she said she did, that A.C. was her boyfriend, or that she was with him that night. The next several questions all lead up to this one question. Did you find any weapons on the deceased? No weapon on the deceased. Howard Moore takes up the questioning. Now, earlier, when you heard the actual voice of Howard Moore, he and I were speaking in the courtroom in 2018. But for the reenactment from 1962, we're using a voice actor to represent Howard Moore, who here is questioning Detective Brooks. Officer Brooks, did you find any weapon on the deceased? No. Did you find a knife on the deceased? No. Did you find any sort of truncheon or stick on the deceased? No, no weapon. Did you find any whiskey on his person? No. Did you find any dice? Dice? Yes. No. Do you have any information or knowledge that indicates that the decedent had been in a fight shortly before his death? No. Do you, of your own knowledge, know whether or not there was a warrant outstanding for his arrest? No. Now remember, this is Howard Moore's first witness examination in his career. He's asked a series of questions that go directly to the sort of person that A.C. Hall was. In effect, he's asking, was A.C. Hall an unsavory character? And he has forced the detective to answer no seven times. So what is Howard Moore doing with this line of questioning? Well, first of all, what does he know? He knows that five white men are sitting in judgment of one black boy. He knows that when the white woman yelled, that's him, the black boy ran. In the eyes of white Macon, was that not clear evidence of guilt? Moore knew what he was up against. This wasn't just about A.C. Hall. White people harbored so many misguided notions about black people, so many myths. The myth of inferiority, that black people are happier and better off with white people in charge. The myth of laziness. And there's the myth of black criminality. This boils down to a dangerous idea that still affects our culture. That white men were born superior and black men are born criminals. That's why the self-defense alibi works and why it was especially effective back then. White Southerners, and don't forget I am one, were marinated in misbegotten notions about black Southerners. I recall racist children's books that made blacks look like buffoons. I remember in stores, my eyes drawn to covers of pulp fiction that showed lusty, busty white women in the foreground. Hey, I was a teenager. And ferocious-looking black men sneaking up behind them. And oh, the racist jokes. But surely that was counterbalanced in the schools, right? Wrong. 
Well, maybe in some places, but I want to tell you about an Alabama history textbook that was adopted by the Board of Education in my county in Alabama in the early 1960s. Now, I cannot say for sure that this textbook was used in my school, but I know it was used in schools around me. It's a 1961 textbook, elementary, maybe junior high school, called No Alabama. The topic was Reconstruction. Many of the Negroes in the South remained loyal to the white Southerners. Even though they had lately been freed from slavery, even though they had no education, they knew who their friends were. They knew that the Southern white men who had been good to them in the time of their slavery were still their friends. The book goes on to extol the service, the courage, even the necessity of the Ku Klux Klan. So in Macon, Howard Moore could taste the poison of white supremacy, of the mythology wrapped around his people. But he couldn't defend all of black America in this courtroom. What he could do was defend one black teenager. So he set out to acquit A.C. Hall of any wrongdoing. Now this was reflected in his questions of Detective Brooks, including this next question. Do you of your own knowledge, have any reason to have had suspicion that the decedent had committed any crime, that he had robbed anybody or broken into a house or murdered anybody shortly before his death? Ask that again. Moore has the clerk read the question back to Brooks, but the detective doesn't answer the question directly. Instead, he says this. According to the statement of Mrs. Hopper, she stated that when, before the officers fired, She identified A.C. Hall as the one who had taken the gun from her car glove compartment. And there is a gun entered into evidence, and the jurors can see it with their own eyes. It's a black twenty-two caliber revolver, and it has caught the jury's attention. And has this gun been found? No. Could this twenty-two caliber short in evidence here be that gun? No. And the only gun found in the vicinity where the decedent was shot was this gun here? This gun here. And as of this date, no other gun has been found. No, it hasn't. Wait. A gun was stolen. A gun was found. Imagine you're on the coroner's jury when the pieces start clicking into place. Gun stolen. Gun found. But they're not the same gun? How can that be? They look like the same gun. So you're asking yourself, where the hell did this gun come from? Why is it even here in the courtroom? Well, we're going to hear a lot more about this. But first, let's listen as attorney Howard Moore throws one more fastball down the middle. And do you, of your own knowledge, know whether either of these officers has been arrested for the alleged shooting and murder of A.C. Hall? I object to that, Mr. Coroner. Here in our reenactment, that's the drawling voice of defense attorney Denmark Groover. The mention of the word murder was just too much for Groover. But Howard Moore had gotten what he wanted. I withdraw the question. From the outset, the Macon police had asserted that A.C. Hall was responsible for his own shooting. The initial story in the Macon Telegraph, the local morning newspaper, said, a 17-year-old Negro boy who was believed to have stolen a gun was shot to death by a Macon police officer last night. 
This paragraph in the same story is attributed to the chief of detectives. Quote, the officer said they tried to get the youth to stop, but he ran. While being pursued, he turned and made a motion, which the officer interpreted as an attempt to draw a weapon. Close quote. A brief story in the next day's telegraph said the inquest had been scheduled, but the story kept beating the same drum. He wheeled at one point in his flight, and both officers fired because they thought he had turned to fire on them. The day after that, the Telegraph reported the discovery of the gun. The gun fits the description of the gun reported stolen. By now, in the minds of many of the white public, A.C. Hall had been asking for it. This, as I've said before, is the classic defense that works so well for white people accused of killing black people. First, the black person is presumed to be a criminal because he's black. Second, this criminal intended to kill the white person. So the white person was fully justified in killing the black person. Self-defense. One of the reasons this was so effective in court, black people were not allowed to serve on juries. So the white defense attorneys tells the white jurors that the white defendant had no choice. And the white jurors would conclude, almost by involuntary reflex, not guilty. But let's get back to 1962 and the inquest into A.C. Hall's death. We've heard from the detective. The next witness is Dr. Leonard Campbell, the medical examiner. Campbell, who's brought the dead teenager's shirt with him to the court, is about to drop a bombshell. This is probably the most explosive testimony of the inquest. So Dr. Campbell, played here by a voice actor, maps the destructive path of the bullet through the body of A.C. Hall. There is only one injury to the body, which was the bullet wound mentioned. The injury was situated at a point five inches to the left of the midline posteriorly, and the bullet passed through the lower part of the left lung, through the diaphragm, through the spleen, the left lobe of the liver, the diaphragm again, through the middle lobe of the left lung, and through the apex of the left ventricle of the heart. Howard Moore then takes over the questioning. He quickly casts aside the medical jargon and cuts to the chase. Note how he has to ask the witness five times where A.C. Hall was shot. Dr. Campbell, you displayed the shirt worn by the decedent A.C. Hall, did you not? Yes, sir. And you indicated that on the left sleeve there were some blood spots and some stains that were from the lead rubbing off of the bullet. Now, doctor, I was left in a quandary. Does that mean that the bullet went in his back? It went in at the point that I described, yes. And would it be a fair statement to say that he was shot in the back? This stark statement of fact, A.C. Hall was shot in the back, jars the officer's attorney, Denmark Groover, from his seat. I object to that statement. It's prejudicial in the first place. Let him ask the man where he was shot. I have no idea. I mean, the bullet entered the back at the point I described. Now, whether the bullet came directly out of the gun or not, the muzzle of the gun was not up close, I know that. But whether it could have ricocheted off something, no one knows. We could not find the bullet. But doctor, is it a fair statement from your medical examination that the bullet did enter what we would consider the back? Yes. The first entrance of the bullet was in the back part yes. of this boy's body 
And this penetrated through several organs and one bone, as Xi testified. Yes. Over his left pocket. And so that's right, doctor. Yes. So it is a fair conclusion then, is it not, that the bullet entered from the back and was apparently discharged through the front of the body? That's right. Let's let this sink in for a minute. A.C. Hall was shot in the back. Now think about the story that the police had been telling for days. It was in the newspapers. This was conventional wisdom that A.C. Hall, while running, had turned toward them and made a threatening motion as if he were going to shoot. If that's when they fired, when the teenager was turned toward them, how could he have been shot in the back? But he was shot in the back. Just by the way, the medical examiner, Dr. Campbell, knew he had delivered a body blow to the police officers, and he apparently caught some heat for it from the white community. The day after he testified, Dr. Campbell wrote a very defensive letter to the editor of the Macon News, and here's what he said. I do not know the two policemen who apprehended and reportedly shot A.C. Hall. It is my opinion that these two officers were trying to do their duty. There was no antagonism between the officers and A.C. Hall, no maliciousness or meanness or deliberate attempt to kill on the part of the officers were apparent. Now, the letter didn't say how the medical examiner could possibly know this. How would he know what was in the minds of the police officers by examining the body of A.C. Hall? Nor did his letter address why A.C. Hall was shot in the back. Next on Barry Truths. Eloise Franklin takes the stand. A 16-year-old black girl faces a jury of five white men, two white lawyers, and a white coroner. Could this possibly go well? You might be surprised. Then somebody hollered, A.C., here's the police. I'm positive. You're positive of that. That's right. And you're positive that it was only after the police car got beyond you and A.C. that A.C. then broke and ran headed toward Ash Street? That's right. You are positive of that? Yes. Buried Truths is a production of WABE Atlanta. We have a newsletter where you can see photos and documents from the case, as well as links to some of the things that were mentioned in today's episode. You can sign up for our newsletter at wabe.org slash buriedtruths. Also, follow us on social media. We're at Podcast. And of course, as always, please subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review. It'll help others find this show. If you have any information related to this case, write or send a voice memo to hank at barrytruths.org. Hank Klibanoff is a former newspaper reporter and editor and co-author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Race Beat. Today, he's a professor at Emory University. The Barry Truths team includes David Beriswain, Richard Hallix, Catherine Dautrick, Marilyn G. Wax, J.N. Barry, and Christine Dempsey. The actors in this episode included Matt Nitsche, Clint Clark, Robert Jones, Freddie Ashley, Isokea Konke, and Daviar Snipes. Thanks to Emory University and its Centers for Digital Scholarship and Faculty Excellence. And another big thanks to the nearly 100 students who've taken the Civil Rights Cold Cases class that Hank Klibanoff teaches at Emory. And thank you for listening.
to Buried Truths. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.